0: Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. Boy, have I got a show for you today, Oswald Spangler's Decline of the West. This is a topic that I have promised to talk about for quite a while now, and just haven't gotten around to it. But it is a topic of immense importance, and I think of immense interest, because my claim is this, Oswald Spangler is the greatest thinker about history and the importance of history about what within history is important what philosophies what leaders what civilizations what trends in art and thought and everything that has to do with the study of man of all time now i know that's a bold claim and really spangler would chastise me and say that i'm wrong because even if he is the greatest he can only be the greatest within the Western European tradition. He's incomparable to historians of other traditions. But even at that, let's just take that as it is, that he's the greatest philosopher of the Western European tradition in uh, the study of history. What, what is the importance of various aspects of history? Even that claim is contentious, of course, as any claim is. But I will, I will reduce it even more for you. My minimal claim is this. Even if we throw out everything that Spangler has to say about philosophy and about, uh, we, we throw out all of his assumptions about what can be known about history and about how we go about approaching history, and even if we throw out all of his conclusions about eight great civilizations throughout history and a possible ninth civilization, even if we, even if we throw out all of his conclusions about the relative weights of different time periods and all the phenomena of history, even then, he is still the greatest philosopher simply because of the questions that he raises about what is important in history. Now, what do I mean by these questions? So when you study history, whether it be in school or even just the popular notion of history uh, in America and Western Europe today, what do you get? I think it's safe to say that most of us going to uh, you know, high school and college or just watching history on TV or seeing it in the media, You get an idea of something like this. There was ancient civilization up to the fall of Rome. We call that the ancient time. That's the Greeks, the Romans, and then also appended on to that since the 19th century, since all the discoveries of Egypt and Mesopotamia and India and China. Now we have a bunch of other stuff that we kind of just tack on in that beginning period too. And then fall of Rome initiates the Middle Ages. That lasts until about 14, 1500 fall of constantinople discovery of the america's beginning of the so-called age of exploration and then after that we have the the modern period so this is one of spangler's first criticisms that the ancient medieval modern breakdown of history is totally arbitrary and doesn't make sense because it doesn't value the phenomena of history according to their true and objective weight spangler asks why is it that events of, say, the 18th century in Europe, the life of Frederick the Great, or the Seven Years' War, or the, the wars of the Spanish succession, should have any more meaning and any more importance and be studied with any more rigor than, say, the Warring States period in ancient China, or the reign of King Hammurabi in Babylon, or any other century. Why is the... I think he says, why is the 19th century AD more important than the 19th century BC? A possible answer to this would be to say, well, things that are closer to the present are of more interest and, and more important to us. But on the other hand, shouldn't it be that things that are farther back in time have had more time to take effect? Isn't the, uh, aren't the discoveries of Aristotle or the philosophy of Aristotle the... the um, in, basically the the systematization of logic, isn't that a more important event? Hasn't that had more impact over the last 23 centuries than uh, the hippie movement in the 1960s? Well, of course, of course, Aristotle is more important than the 1960s. But probably in school, you had maybe a paragraph in your world history textbook about aristotle and you had probably an entire chapter on the 60s and hippies and the vietnam war and the civil rights movement and blah 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 now before i get into the rest of this so i'm going to go through some more questions that spangler raises and why these questions are important and i'm going to lay out a bunch of things about it so we have the composition of his great work, The Decline of the West, published in, uh, the first volume was published in 1918, the second volume published in 1923. And then I'll talk about the system that Spangler comes up with, the various civilizations that he deduces throughout history. And I'll also talk briefly about the epistemology, the how Spangler, or not epistemology, epistemology and metaphysics, how Spangler claims to know what he knows, and what he claims to be true. I guess actually more the better word for it would be morphology, the study of the shapes, how he discerns what matters throughout history. And then I'll talk about the future of history study and philosophy in the West according to Spangler, see how that that's played out over the last hundred years since we've had a hundred years to see if his uh, predictions were correct. And then uh, I'll talk about how to study Spangler. And uh, finally, where are we now? Uh, Where do we fit on the Spanglerian cycle of Western history? Before I get into that, I want to make a quick note. So we are going to get back to the Mein Kampf series that we started a month ago. Uh, unfortunately, a couple weeks ago, I was sick. But we are going to get back to the Mein Kampf because I know everybody wants to talk about that. But this Spengler stuff is not only important and interesting, and it's not only is it interesting from an intellectual perspective of how should we order our understanding of the past and the future. But it's important because Spangler is sort of culmination of a whole lot of thinking in the 19th century, in Europe, that has largely been lost to the popular consciousness and even to the academic consciousness of the West. And much of Spangler's criticisms of where the study of history is going even in his time, where the, the trends in history in the 19th century and early 20th century is even more pronounced today. The bad things, the bad trends in historical study back then have only been exacerbated now and have made historical study almost irrelevant because of how, um, how badly formulated it, it is. So going back to some of Spengler's other questions. So we said ancient medieval modern this, this breakdown, this tripartite breakdown of history doesn't make any sense. Secondly, we have, from the objective point of view, it doesn't make sense for historians to focus on Europe, and to just treat other parts of the world as appendages to Europe. Now that's not to say, Spangler would not argue that we should study the Bantu tribes of Africa from the first century A.D. to the 20th century as some great thing of historical importance. He would say that that isn't even part of history because there is no philosophy, no literature, nothing worth studying. It's the wars of the Bantu tribes of Africa or their uh, movements from one area to another are of only anthropological interest, not of historical interest. How did... I want to sort of back up a bit. Why did... How did I start to get interested in in Spangler? What what struck me about his history? Now, I've read about history all my life, and I want to explain this from my perspective because I think that'll help a lot of people. There's certain nagging questions I always had growing up studying history in school. One of them is you notice when you read broadly in history, outside of just America and outside of just modern Europe, You notice that there are certain great ages of art and philosophy, and it doesn't really make sense from a material point of view why these ages are so important. So for instance, we have the Golden Age of Athens in the 5th and 4th centuries BC. We have uh, the Renaissance in in northern Italy, particularly in Florence from, say, the time of Dante through Machiavelli, Petrarch, uh, Michelangelo, da Vinci, all of that. You even have the great age of Islam in Baghdad in the 800s AD. Yet at the same time, all of these things, these three golden ages that I've noted, generally happened at times of, well, at least in the case of Athens and of Florence, at times of political disunity. Why is it that there were great ages of philosophy and of art in these sort of small states that had very little? And in great states like Rome of the first century AD, or America today, or the Muslim world of 1100 AD, why was there far less of historical or philosophical or artistic interest being created? That doesn't seem to make sense. Shouldn't it be the case that in America with all of the Uh, material, all of the knowledge available to us, all of the interconnectivity provided by the internet and, and by mass communication, and all of the wealth and all of the people who have the leisure to produce philosophy and art, shouldn't we be in a golden age right now? Why are we not? This question was pertinent in Spangler's time. Even in the late 19th century, people had started to notice that there was a difference between the artistic output of their own era of the 1880s, 1890s, and that of a mere lifetime before them. If you look back to the 1830s, 1820s, uh, 1800 you had a flowering of philosophy and of art. You had uh, in philosophy Kant, in literature, you had Goethe, you had uh, Fichte, Schelling, in statesmanship, you had Napoleon. But by the 1880s or so, and, and well, I should also mention music, Beethoven, Mozart, a f- few decades before that, in the 1880s or so, you have Nietzsche, you have in, uh, in music, uh, Wagner. Take the difference between, between Nietzsche and Kant. Nietzsche can really only be understood, this is going to be a, a bold claim and everyone's going to read about this, but that's fine. Nietzsche can really only be understood as a man who criticizes little bits and pieces of greater philosophers from the past. And that's not to say that Nietzsche wasn't a genius. Maybe he was. But Nietzsche's philosophy can't be really systematized. Nietzsche has a tendency to sort of do fortune cookie philosophy. He'll say little bits of information that seem wise in and of themselves. But if you ever read through Nietzsche, it's hard to discern any continuity of thought. Whereas if you read Kant, and I haven't read Kant, I don't pretend to be that smart, Kant lays everything out very systematically, and it's very rigorous, and the whole thing is a self-contained system. Same thing with a philosopher like Hume or, uh, or Leibniz. And Spengler's explanation of all this is that, to ruthlessly summarize, the reason for Nietzsche's paucity compared to the decades before him is that really all of the great ideas possible within the western tradition within the basic assumptions of the western civilization and by western civilization spangler means western europe of about a thousand a.d to to present had already been worked out if you're going to be a great philosopher you need to have new ideas You need to build on the great ideas of the past. Well, what happens when you've really worked through all of the possible philosophical assumptions and you've created a system that's nearly perfect like Kant? How can you really add much more to that? You would either have to do what some later philosophers like um, Heidegger tried to do and throw out all all of Western tradition, all of Western philosophy, going back to Plato, throw it all out. And then start over with really basic things, try to look at the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece and try to build up a new philosophical system from them. If we look at this from the perspective of art, there is a novel by that notorious homosexual and traitor and faggot, Thomas Mann. But it's worth mentioning because it illustrates the point very well. The novel is Dr. Faustus. Dr. Faustus is about a composer in the early 20th century. He's a, he's a made-up guy. And he tries to invent a new way to compose because he's, he's trying to compose within the Western tradition. He's trying to add to Mozart, add to Beethoven, add to Wagner. And he can't do it because there's just nothing really new that he can do that's not only is it new, but it's also good. And so what he does is, I mean, in, in the book, he, he Screws a prostitute so he can get syphilis and then syphilis breaks down some of the, his brain enough that he actually is, gets smarter. I, I think this is something that happens when you get syphilis for a brief time. You have a sort of flowering of genius. It's like doing LSD, I guess. And he then creates a new tonal system based on 12 tones rather than eight and then composes within the new 12 tone system and is able to thereby create something that is not only good, but still new. And the same thing we see in, in plastic or in um, in visual arts like painting. If you think of painting in the 18th century, think of uh, and earlier. You think of like realism. Once you've done a bun- once you've done realism, beautiful landscapes, uh, portraiture. Once you've done that for a few decades, well, people, the highly educated people, are going to want more and more things. So they're going to want not just beautiful portraiture and landscapes. Well, maybe now you need to do like Van Gogh and you need to paint, uh, you need to make it a little bit abstract. And then, well, that gets boring after a while, so we have to break it down even more. And uh, before you know it, you're just slopping paint on a big board or you're doing Dada art of the 1920s and you're sticking a urinal in a museum and calling it great art because there's this craving for newness in art, just like there's a craving for newness in philosophy and in in all culture. So. To Spangler, it's not really that people get dumber, or that art is destroyed by bad social trends. It's merely a necessity of history that these things will come about. Now, in before, Spangler is often accused of being determinist. That is, he's accused of looking at history and saying that certain things will happen. Now, that's, I, maybe I said that, but that's a misformulation of what he actually says. Spangler says that there's at any point in history, there are two ways that things can go. You can either do what is historically possible, or you can do nothing. So if you're an artist, doing nothing might would be the idea of you're just continuing in the old tradition, you're slavishly copying uh, the art that has already been done, like you're just in the 20th century, you're writing Bach concertos. If you try to push into the new thing, well, at a certain point in art and philosophy, that becomes becomes impossible. So what is it that really brilliant men do at that point in their culture that the Western world hit in the late 19th century, or that the ancient classical Greek and Roman culture hit in about the time of Alexander, the the, uh, fourth or or third centuries BC? Well, you have to move into what Spanglin calls the civilizational phase. And you have to do practical things. So, the great minds of a practically minded age, a civilization, as he calls it, as opposed to a culture, in the civilization time, you have to do politics, you have to do law, you have to do science and technics. And that's where you're going to find the great minds of the age. So, a little bit of background. I said Spengler's Decline of the West was published in 1918. So that was the last year of World War I. Spangler had originally tried to write a book uh, going back to 1911. He was writing a book to explain the causes of the current geopolitical situation. So he was trying to explain uh, the Morocco crisis, uh, the Fashoda incident. He was trying to explain how things had gotten to where they were in 1911. And being the autist and deep thinker that he was, It wasn't satisfactory to him to simply look at geopolitical causes and economic affairs and finance. He kept zooming out and zooming out and zooming out. And he had to see, he had to explain all of world history before he could explain the Fashoda incident or the uh, the Tangier incident. And as he was writing this, he, he says he had the book mostly completed by 1914. And then it went through several revisions throughout the war. He was too old to, well, he wasn't too old to fight in the war, but he was like not medically fit for the war. And uh, he had a lot of time on his hands because he was, by that time, he, he just was a, a private scholar and living on a small, um, a small what do you call it, a, uh, he had money from his family, not, not enough to be rich, but enough to get by. So he was able to devote all of his time to study. Further back, early in his life, he had studied philosophy. He would written a PhD thesis on Heraclitus. He had not been able to enter into academia because his Heraclitus thesis was not considered brilliant enough so he taught a, at a gymnasium a uh, a preparatory school for a few years before retiring and then spending most of his life writing or not spending the high point of his life writing Decline of the West which is two volumes the first one is of form and actuality and then the second is perspectives on world history so In Volume 1, he lays out his theory of how one goes about studying history, and then in in 2, he sort of works out some of the problems of if you apply this thinking to history, what sort of, what things do you get? This philosophy, when it came out in 1918, was published, I think there were 100 volumes published. It was a very small publication run, but quickly it was noticed, even though it wasn't by a great professor or famous man. Nobody knew who he was. It was quickly noticed as being a very interesting and important work, not just in Germany, but across the West, in France and Britain and America as well. The, later on, Spengler did some other works that I'm not really going to talk about today, but uh, he wrote a book called Hour of Decision in, uh, in 1933, I think. Uh, that's a very good uh, introduction as well and, and explains a little bit more about this, what he specifically thought about the West condition in the 1920s and 1930s and is uh, if you're getting introduced to Spangler for the first time, I recommend reading Hour of Decision before anything else, just because it's it's a much shorter read and it's much less dependent on a lot of philosophical uh, and uh, a lot of knowledge of intellectual history that is very difficult spangler i read spangler uh, decline of the west first about 10 years ago and i really didn't have the background to understand a lot of it because the amount of information uh, about classical history uh medieval islamic history uh western history history of thought all of this that's in spangler is very hard to read even now i i read through it and i'm like i don't know who that person is i don't know who that person is but i have enough to get an overall picture and when i first read it 10 years ago. I had always been under the impression that Decline of the West was a sort of popular political book, the way that maybe, I don't know, a Glenn Beck book or something would be today. And it was just a a mere fad of sort of racist thinking in uh, early 20th century Germany. But when I actually read the introduction to volume one of Decline of the West, I was astounded by the richness of the thought. And most importantly, by the questions that Spangler raises, because these are all the questions that I had always had studying history in school about why do we care more about the Vietnam War than the uh, Hittite Empire? Like, why is that more important? Another thing that impressed me was that Spangler is absolutely dismissive of the idea that history the importance of history is progress so I, mean, I sort of touched on this earlier when i outlined how western in western history in school you sort of look at it from ancient medieval modern there's a tendency very strong in the media and in academia to talk about history to approach any historical question from the viewpoint of how does this lead to today and how does this any fact of of history, how does this reflect the idea that history is a movement from barbarism and patriarchy and savagery and tyranny to progress and freedom and tolerance and diversity and everything else, every other catchword of the current era? What is so striking about this conventional idea that history is, is progress toward liberty. You think of the American revolution. Oh, we, for, at first, we had the American revolution and white men of property were free and could vote. Well, then after that, we, we had the civil war and that freed the slaves and then black men could vote. And then we had, uh, the, the women's movement and women could vote. And then we had, we had world war one and world war two, when we brought freedom to Europe and, uh, freed the Jews from the, the evil Germans. And then we had the Cold War, and we broke communism, and then in 1990, we emerged into this perfect world of uh, more freedom, more democracy, and then we realized that homosexuals also needed to be free and allowed to uh, groom children. All of that just seems preposterous to any thinking person. So Spengler's answer to all this is that we should look at history not as a line, not look at all of history of China, of Europe, and, and the Middle East, and India, and America as all one thing. But the real correct way to look at history is to look at cultures of groups of people who have the same ideas about the world, the same sense of, and he gets down really into it, and, and he argues that it, is, it has to do with your sense of direction and your sense of time and your sense of numbers and your sense of the very makeup of the world that creates this idea that is unique to any particular culture and that this idea is worked out over about a period of a thousand years. And so I think it's best to illustrate this by example. So he defines eight different Cultures that have existed throughout history, and after about a thousand years, these cultures pass into a phase called civilization, uh, that I talked about a little bit earlier. These cultures are first. We have things like China from the time of roughly a thousand BC to uh, the, the the establishment of the Chinese Empire, empire under Shi Huangdi uh, around uh, one twenty BC or we have ancient India about contemporary with that ancient Egypt from 250 b or 2500 BC to 1500 BC or so that would be their period of culture uh, ancient Mesopotamia and uh if you want more details on that you can check out uh Prussian socialism episode 8 I think it is we talk about ancient Mesopotamia and then he defines the two that are most pertinent to us which are Classical civilization of Greece and Rome, from the time of Homer, to well, yeah, the time of Homer, so circa 800, 8 uh, 750 B.C. to maybe the time of of Alexander, of uh, Scipio Africanus and Hannibal, uh, 200 B.C. And then you have Western history from about 1000 A.D. So Otto the First, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, until like 1900. He specifically splits classical and Faustian civilization, or he calls Faustian is is Western civilization, uh, European civilization. Sometimes he uses the term Apollonian for classical civilization, and then uh, Faustian for Western European civilization. And he splits these two as being distinct. In his view, it is not the case that Western history is one long thing from Homer to today. And that makes intrinsic sense to me, just because you have that great age of ancient Greece of Athens, and we have that great age of the Renaissance in the West. And it's really hard to explain why those two golden ages of philosophy and art should be split by 2,000 years, 1,900 years. And it also doesn't really make sense because the center of Greco-Roman civilization was Greece and Southern Italy. And the center, the geographic center of Western civilizations, Northern Italy, Germany, France, Southern England. Basically, a sort of line, if you, if you look at a map, draw a line from London to Milan or London to Florence and, and right along that line through uh, Switzerland and the Rhine Valley and up into the Low Countries and then across into England. All of the great thinkers and all of the great art of the Western European tradition seem to come from that area. Well, with a few others, you'd say uh, Cervantes in Spain or, or the the Icelandic sagas. There's, there's some things in the periphery too, but the real center of all the great philosophical, artistic, cultural developments was that area from about London to Florence. And in Spengler's view, it it is the western civilization is the only civilization ever to have modeled itself so strictly and to look to have looked so um intently at a alien past civilization and taken that as an example. If you think of the Greeks, the Greeks didn't really weren't that influenced by Mesopotamia or by Egypt. Uh, there's a little bit of, of uh ancient Egyptian thinking or uh Mesopotamian thinking in uh the Greek philosophers, but as Spangler would would claim and does claim, the Greeks totally misunderstood the ideas of the Egyptians and of the Mesopotamians, and they just sort of adopted little superficial bits of them. No other civilization has really looked to the past or to a past civilization as the Faustian does to the classical civilization. All, so much of our art, as, as, as you know, is based and our, our thinking is based on the Greeks and the Romans. And Spengler argues that this is not a natural development, but it's a sort of superficial development. We have looked at Plato and Aristotle and misunderstood them deeply and then applied them to our own civilization in a way that they themselves would have never understood. The other civilization, the the seventh civilization, so the Chinese, Indian, Egyptian, Babylonian, oh, and then Mexican, so ancient Aztecs and Mayans, and then classical Greek, and then Faustian, the eighth civilization he talks more about in volume two, the eighth civilization is what he calls Magian. And this is of great interest to me because he defines a civilization existing from in the Eastern Mediterranean from about the time of Christ to about 800 or 900 AD. And you'll notice that this is sort of strange because most people think of The advent of Islam, of Muhammad, as being the beginning of a strictly new civilization, an Islamic civilization that then took over the Middle East, uh, took over Syria, Iraq, Egypt, North Africa, Persia, and that blossomed into something new. Spangler looks at Muhammad and sees not a founder of a totally new civilization, because according to sort of the way he sees things playing out over time, you couldn't have just one genius come up with an entirely new way of looking at the world. Uh, well, you you can, but you can't have a man who singularly invents an idea that gives birth to a to a culture or civilization. So, you know, as as brilliant as Muhammad might have been for inventing Islam, he didn't create. The civilization out of which uh islam sprung that idea uh goes back even farther in time and spengler sees in a lot of the greek writing uh i guess you'd call them theologians or, or philosophers of late antiquity so of the 100s 200s 300s ad as being not properly part of greek history or of classical history but as part of this new blossoming blossoming idea which he calls maging civilization and if you look at I mean this is a sort of a part of history that's very difficult to find popular information about it's the lands of the very eastern Roman Empire in the imperial age and the writers in Aramaic and uh, a lot in Greek and uh, in Pahlavi uh, Middle Persian and then later in Arabic who built up this new idea of the world and spangler contrasts this major civilization with western civilization by saying that you can notice the difference in that in the major idea the that pre-islamic and then islamic civilization their idea of politics and of the proper organization of society is that your religious cult is your community so a Jew, wherever a Jew is, is part of the Majin civil is part of the Jewish subset of the Majin civilization. And Muslim, wherever he is, is part of the Muslim civilization. A Christian, uh, a um, Nestorian Christian or one of the, any of the Eastern uh, Catholics would call them heresies. And in one of these Eastern religions, Byzantine Orthodoxy, for instance, these are all little subcultures or not subcultures they're communities within the broader maging civilization and he contrasts that with, with the west because in the west in Europe the idea the prevailing idea is that your civilization or your, your political group has to be bound by land so in Islam you're a Muslim whether you're in Iraq or you're in Tunisia you as a, as a Muslim from Baghdad or from uh, Juan, uh, you have more in common with each other politically than you do with the jew or the christian who lives in the ghetto within your city in western thinking this doesn't make sense in western thinking you have to segregate people's c- political communities by land uh cuis, what is it? cuius regio eus religio the uh the the principle of i think that the principle of, of western political organization whoever controls whoever the prince is his religion should be the the religion whether lutheranism or catholicism in, in the context of of uh reggio religio that is the principle of political organization that you have to have people united in their religious and and philosophic cultural idea within a piece of land it doesn't make sense to split people up whereas from the magean point of view that is completely unethical so that observation right there uh you know this is a national socialist podcast of course we have to talk about jews that idea right there in a way explains the problem of jews and non-jews in western civilization jews view the proper way to break down civilization the proper way to do politics to order society is that people who believe the same thing are a community and that they need not live on the same piece of land whereas faustians believe and order the world such that you think of not only just uh, cuius uh, regio cuius religio think of uh wilson's 14 points the idea that that Caused Germany, well, the, the idea that all of Europe rallied around at, in the, at the end of World War One, the idea that a group of people should be allowed to control their own desti- destiny, self determination. That idea is the core political idea of a Western people, and it is completely antithetical to the to the idea of this this posited Mayan civilization. So. You'll notice I've talked about magians as if they're still around today. This is sort of a side point, but Spengler does say that, you know, after civilization has worked out all of its ideas, after its culture has come to an end and it transitions into that civilization phase and it applies now its ideas not to not to inward things like philosophy and art, but to uh, great. Practical things building aqueducts and coliseums and organizing law uh, Justinian's uh, corpus juris civilis that all that stuff lasts up to a certain point and, and the civilization can be destroyed I mean it, it will be eventually destroyed but sometimes a, a that that core idea of a civilization like the classical will, will linger on in back areas for a long time Spengler mentions it's southern Italy um, Northern Spain, Southern France—you still find uh, peasants who, in their spirituality and in their outlook on life, are pretty much identical to ancient Greeks. Um, and same thing with the Magian world and uh, Islam—you know, may have and and the Magian spiritual idea, uh, the Magian cultural idea might have died out in uh, you know around a thousand, and then you had the great empires of the Mamelukes and the Ottomans, but. Even today, there're still people who still in in this sort of degraded form believe in the Majin civil or have the core idea of the Magien civilization. There's a lot more to say on that in, in the idea of pseudometamorphosis. And let's 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 skip on because I think you probably have some questions about how does any of this make sense? I mean, how do you how do you support these ideas? So in Philosophy. I'm no great student of philosophy, but I I think I understand the basics pretty clearly. You have to go, you have to work your way back. Philosophy isn't just like a, a gentleman's pursuit. It's not like you just sit around and come up with with fun and crazy ideas. There's there has to be a certain rigor to it. So and this, you know, the ancient Greeks noticed uh, Socrates uh, was not satisfied with the uh, philo- philosophizing attempts of the uh, so- the philosophers that went before him, the so-called pre-Socratics, uh, Heraclitus, Thales, Anaximander, those guys. Socrates and the first Greek philosophers, well, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, worked out the idea that. The most important thing in philosophy, the thing you have to do before you do anything else is you have to ask, how do I know? And this gave birth to a philosophical discipline called epistemology or theory of knowledge. And this is basically just the idea of how do you know? And if you want to think of all of the academic disciplines in a giant pyramid with the top being the most important and the most original, you have to put philosophy as a whole at the top. Because philosophy rules how we go about doing history or how we go about doing science. But among f- the f- elements within philosophy, you have to ask, you have to go to epistemology first. How do we know? That has to be the first question. And the Western philosophers uh, like Descartes, of course, did this as well. Uh, Descartes took this almost to a, an extreme by asking, how, how, what can I know anything? how do I know that anything I see is real? How do I know that I'm not just being deluded, that like some demon isn't entered my mind and given me a delusion of the whole world? And Descartes' famous conclusion is cogito ergo sum." I think therefore I am. He deduced that by the very fact that he was able to deduce, that he was able to think that he, the one thing he knows is that he can think. And by extension, then, all internal subjective states, happiness, sadness, whatever, you can know to be true. But anything beyond that is suspect, and Western philosophy has concerned itself very much since then with trying to figure out, can we know anything more than just our internal subjective states? But going down the ladder from epistemology, theory of knowledge, the other important discipline, metaphysics is the question of, how do we know, or not how do we know, what is, what exists? Because once you've asked, how do we know, you want to get to, well, does anything exist other than my internal subjective states? And so Spengler is often criticized, and many philosophers are criticized, for not really answering these questions appropriately, or making moves too quickly to get from how do I know to what do I know and trying to lay things out Spangler's epistemology is is very difficult and I I don't pretend to be an expert but I'll try to lay out for you the, the basic ideas of, of how he's going about making these assertions about what is important within history Spangler's key thing in history and in the study of history is that history is not the study of causes you cannot apply the category of causation to history. So the way that you might apply causation to physics, you say, well, the cue ball hits the eight ball, the eight ball is the the momentum is transferred. The eight ball rolls into the pocket. That is causation because it is physically necessary based on the laws of Newton and the laws of motion that the eight ball has to accept the momentum from the cue ball if it's hit. That is apl- applicable to all of nature but Spengler says in history we are dealing with an essentially a different thing because we are asking uh and you know he's not the only person to have ever said this by any stretch of the imagination but in history you're dealing with intention and so to ask uh, how did was uh did lead pipes cause the fall of the roman empire or did the barbarian invasions cause the fall of the roman empire we sort of use the word cause casually to talk about history, and it's not necessarily necessarily wrong to do so, but we shouldn't think of the word cause as having the same import as it does in physics or in science. In history, what you're dealing with is not trying to, well, sorry, I was, what I want to say is about. If we apply this backwards, it's equally absurd to apply in science the idea of intention. You wouldn't say that the eight ball intended to be hit or the cue ball intended to hit the eight ball into the pocket. That, that's absurd. It's causation. It's, it's, mere, it's mere physical laws that, that make that happen. It's cause. In history, we're concerned with looking at the outward phenomena that we see. The empires, the great men... The great ideas the things that made people do things we look at these things and then we try to do morphology that is the study of shapes we try to outline where things are different where the real lines of division are is classical civilization different from western civilization spangler would say yes because he's drawing a morphological distinction between the growth of the greek idea and then the growth of the western germanic french idea so he draws out a whole bunch of of uh, distinctions that are applicable to uh history on the one side and nature or I might say science the science is the study of nature on the other side so on the science side you have things like things are systematic whereas in history they're Physiognomic. We're looking at the outward form of things. You have causality makes things happen in in nature, but in history, it's destiny. All of this goes back to a philosophical distinction that he's drawing between the idea of being versus becoming. So being is things exist. How do they exist? How do things happen? But then in history we ask, why do things happen spangler is is working from this idea of becoming and versus being and certain philosophers he identifies as being wholly concerned with nature with the idea of being and causality so he points at aristotle and he points at kant as being the primary philosophers of the their respective civilizations uh, to systematize that culture's idea of being and of how nature works On the other hand, he completely Kant, in Spengler's opinion, has absolutely nothing to say about becoming, about how things come to be, how things change over time. Time is is the key element that differentiates being from becoming. In the West, he points at Goethe, who is not usually reckoned as a philosopher, but in Spangler's opinion, even though Goethe never wrote a philosophical treatise, he is a philosopher, and you know, I'll, I'll read, he has a note on this where he explains it. He says in the introduction, The philosophy of this book I owe to the philosophy of Goethe, which is practically unknown today, and also, uh, but in a far less degree, to that of Nietzsche. The position of Goethe in Western European metaphysics is still not understood in the least. When philosophy is being discussed, he is not even named. For unfortunately, he did not set down his doctrines in a rigid system, and so the systematic philosophy has overlooked him. Nevertheless, he was a philosopher, and then he goes on to quote a line from Goethe, from one of his, uh, I think it's one of his, uh, one of his letters. He says, "Divinity is effective in the living and not in the dead, in the becoming and the changing, not in the become and the set fast, and therefore, similarly, the uh, the faculty of reason." is concerned only to strive towards the divine through becoming and the living and the understanding, the faculty of understanding, only is concerned to make use of the become and the set fast. So I'll briefly mention in in Western philosophy, particularly in the last hundred years, there's a dispute between so-called analytic philosophers and continental philosophers. The very terminology of analytic versus continental is confusing because analytic, uh, analytic philosophy, excuse me, analytic philosophy refers to is often means the philosophy of of English writers and thinkers. Usually Hume is cited as the first sort of analytic philosopher. Analytic philosophy is very concerned with epistemology as it should be. Continental philosophy is sort of this, I think it's a false category, but it lumps together all the philosophers who do not concern themselves with epistemology and says, well, they're not philosophers. This is all just dilettantism. I have a couple criticisms of this breakdown. First of all, analytic in English, in the common speech, analytic doesn't mean what it means in the technical terminology. Analytic to most people means deep. So you talk about uh, an analytic thinker, or an analytic book means a book that thinks very deeply about something. This is sort of a misnomer because the word analytic in its technical sense means breaking apart. Analusis in Greek means to br- to break apart, and it's usually contrasted in English with uh, the word synthetic, which in Greek means sticking together. So breaking apart, sticking together. This is uh, often confuses people because you have you talk about analytic languages versus synthetic languages. Analytic people think, well, analytic—that's good, deep thinking. Synthetic, well, synthetic is bad. Synthetic oil, synthetic uh, things are fake, so that's bad. No, no, no. It's this is a, a confusing technical term, and it's based on the original meaning of the Greek. It means breaking apart or sticking together. This is why we need English to purify our language, but that's a topic for another day. The Continental philosophers include people like are usually lumped. You you lump in that group. uh, People like Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Hegel. And. It's. Really, this distinct, the proper distinction in Spangler's mind, and I think he's right, is that there are philosophers of being and philosophers of becoming philosophers of being, broadly speaking, are your analytic philosophers. Philosophers of becoming, broadly speaking, are your so-called continental philosophers. The other criticism I have of this is the the overbearing arrogance of the English, sorry guys, in calling their philosophy analytic and then co- dismissing everything else as continental. Great irony of analytic philosophy is that one of its primary thinkers is uh, Kant, who was of course a Prussian, and that the great philosophers of the late 19th and 20th century who you know think of Bertrand Russell would think of themselves as in the analytic tradition they look to two people above all else as being the progenitors of the analytic philosophy and this is the theoretician of logic Gottlob Frege and the i guess you'd call him a philosopher of language Lud- uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein both of whom were German so it's sort of weird to break it down on English versus German or English versus German and French grounds it doesn't really make any sense really the western philosophical tradition has to encompass both and does encompass both i mean you see english uh you see uh analytic philosophers of being on both sides of the english channel and you see philosophers of the continental sort on both sides as well uh analytic philosophers would reject mill as being part of their tradition uh saying that he is not worthy of the analytic tradition so w- what is he then i guess he's a continental so the importance of all this analytic continental or being versus becoming and the importance of of refuting the idea that only the so-called analytic philosophers only philosophers that concern themselves with very small technical questions of epistemology the reason that all that's important is because if you conclude that only philosophers of being only kant and Bertrand Russell and Wittgenstein and theoreticians of logic like Gottlob Frege, only if you conclude that only men like that have something valid to say about the world, then really what you're saying is that only science only the, I, not science, but the study of nature, world is nature, as Spengler calls it, only that means anything and is valid uh, knowledge and that anything about history about how men work and how civilizations come about is not a valid question so it's in a way a radically anti-intellectual position to hold to dismiss uh, an entire uh, half of our way of studying the world of not not not, that's not just Western civilization but all civilizations all intellectual traditions are in a way broken in these two categories: studying being or studying becoming. So, if you completely dismiss the becoming aspect, you're not really able to say anything about history. Another way to think of it is that history is better. It's better to think of the study of history like the the study of art. The things that you do in science, uh, the the categories that apply to science, like causation don't apply to history and i don't think Spengler quite puts it this way but a good historian would be like a good artist there is necessarily a certain subjective nature to it uh even though you have a theory of aesthetics you have a theory of history about how it should be written we can still make some uh you Know with the theory of history, philosophy of history like Spangler's, we can still look at history and say, okay, well, this is a good history, this is a bad history, this is well thought out, this is not well thought out. So, uh, in defense of the epistemological foundations of Spangler, I think it's best just to think of it as history is more like an art than it is like a science. To illustrate this a little bit more, so Spangler's Position is that in order to study history, we have to have the correct, we have to identify the correct civilizations and the correct breakdown of things. So let's take some examples from medieval history to illustrate the correct way to do it versus the wrong way to do it. So, I, uh, in the last few weeks I read a book on the Normans in southern Italy. Uh, it's called it's by uh, my, my favorite British historian, John Julius Norwich. He's a popular historian, but he's a he's a good writer and an interesting guy. He wrote a trilogy on Byzantium. Uh, his book on southern Italy and on the Normans. So the Normans came to southern Italy in like the 1030s, 1040s, and started uh, fighting as mercenaries for the different Lombard lords in the south of Italy. And then they started to build their own kingdoms under Robert Giscard and, and his brother Roger. And eventually they took over Sicily and pushed the Muslims out and then founded a, a, a kingdom that lasted for about 100, 150, well, 100 years about until uh, the Normans were overthrown and um, uh, by uh, the the Holy Roman Empire and, and uh, Frederick II became the king of Sicily for another 50 years or so. The interesting thing about this history book and it is that from the Spanglerian perspective is that the, the story of the Normans in Sicily and in southern Italy is a story of one political group, one people, an identifiable group of people who are ruling over other groups of people, the Lombards, the Greeks, the Arabs. And there is a political unity there that is valid for historical study, even though this area is, is it's a, it was a frontier at the time. It's a frontier between Byzantine uh, Orthodox culture and uh muslim arab culture which spangler would group together as part of the Magian civilization albeit in its late stage and then a new incoming western civilization under the normans and well, under the lombards too and then also it's sort of this back this classical backwater uh a land Southern Italy and Sicily were a core of Greco-Roman civilization, but hadn't nothing really of historical importance had happened in Southern Italy since the Punic Wars, if you think about it. I mean, uh, throughout all of Roman history, uh, Southern Italy was sort of the West Virginia or the Kentucky for the Roman army. It's where they recruited their legionnaires from uh, for a couple centuries uh, before they started recruiting more heavily from Spain and and Gaul and uh, the Danubian provinces and then later Germany. And. Throughout the early Middle Ages, nothing of importance happened there. No great culture arose there. No uh, political entity arose from there. Uh, The only thing you can really think of even happening in Southern Italy is, well, the Arab invasion, the Byzantine invasion, uh, the Norman invasion, and the brief sojourn of uh, Alaric the Goth into Southern Italy, where he died in Calabria in uh, 411, I think, uh, before the Visigoths and left and went to Southern France and Spain. So, Southern Italy really from a historical perspective nothing happened there until the norman or until the normans built a kingdom there and it was a sort of colonial kingdom a colony of western civilization in the central mediterranean now contrast that with you'll see a lot of books about spain in the middle ages spain in the middle ages is just a geographic expression it's Christians in the north, Muslims in the center in the south. Uh, Christian minorities, Jews spread throughout the south as well. And so to write a book about Spain in the Middle Ages, or at least, you know, the the Spain as a whole, you're really writing the history of a frontier. You're not writing the history of a civilization or of even a, a subgroup or a, of a civilization like the Berbers. Doing a history of the Berbers from the time of uh, there arises a great people in the 700s with the advent of Islam into North Africa. And then tracing that history, combining their colony, their their establishments in southern Spain and central Spain with their dynasties in North Africa, too. That would make sense because there's cultural unity between the Berbers of North Africa and of Spain for about 800 years. There's 800 years civilization there about which you cannot even point to a book. There are no books. I mean, I and I've looked. There are no substantial history books. I mean, there are a couple, but there are no substantial histories of the Berbers from the time of uh, the advent of Islam of uh, Musa bin Nusayr and Tariq bin Ziyad to the fall of Grenada in 1492. Instead, there are books about Spain which is just a geographic thing for that whole period of time. It's the story of the Christians being overthrown by the Muslims and then uh, being relegated to the, 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 the very north, asturiath, and then pushing back down in the south into the, in the Reconquista. It would be equally absurd. Imagine somebody writing a history of the Midwest of the United States from 1500 to 1800. What would that history look like? You would have the stories of various Indian tribes fighting each other and living in Stone Age existence. And then you would have some middle chapters about the French showing up and trading furs. And then you would have the story of English speaking uh, Americans coming in and taking over in the Midwest. And you would write your ending chapter on the fall of the Midwestern culture of 1500 to 1800. And that would be the establishment of the states of Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio. It would be ridiculous. It isn't a historical unity. And nobody has ever written such a book because nobody, well, maybe somebody has, God knows in academia today, probably somebody would, uh, because it isn't a valid it isn't a valid uh, morphology. It doesn't break down the shapes correctly. It doesn't break down the peoples that belong in each part. It makes sense to write a history of the expansion of America to the West. Uh, or and and the conflicts that happened from the point of view of the Americans, or even you could go so far as to write a history of the Indians, although you don't really have much culture to work with. But you could write a sort of history of their resistance to Western expansion. But to write a history of a frontier, it doesn't, and then to to it doesn't have a, a unity as a story the way that the story of a people does. And so. In doing history, we have to break things down that way. Spengler talks about in uh, in volume one. He talks he he outlines what is the future of history study. Where can history go from where it's gone? Think you know. Leading up to Spengler, there had been a great revolution in German historical writing and thinking, and actually, I would say not just German but all Western, although it's primarily centered in Germany. The some of the great historians of the nineteenth century in Germany. Uh, including uh, mainly Leopold von Renke, came up with the modern and the accepted way of doing history, even today. And and it's strange that you probably you would not hear the name Ranke if you weren't a graduate student in history, even though he is the main guy for writing about history in the 19th century. I mean, along with some other ones like Momsen. Ranke came up with the idea sorry i'm saying his name the english way or the german way kind of confusedly Ranke came up with the idea that we need to look at the primary sources in doing our history we have to value accounts written at the time of the event over accounts written later because people get confused memory degrades People import their current opinions when they write about things that happened earlier in their life or in um, When they interview people who are talking about earlier in their lives So we have to go to the original sources and this is something that you'll see in all great modern historians people like uh, David Irving are, are religious in their pursuit of primary sources to write history that idea and and those historians of, of Germany, particularly also England and France and, and Italy in the late 19th century, they produced a lot of great histories, many of which are forgotten today. I've mentioned before on the show, some of them, you have historians who are people like, um, oh, what's it, Islam, uh, Spanish Islam by Dozy, completely forgotten, but it's. It is a history written by a guy who thoroughly absorbed himself in the primary sources, knew Arabic, knew Latin, was able to read all of the original sources and compiled a readable and understandable history of what happened in Islamic Spain over the course of several centuries, uh, 700 to about 1100. And there's dozens, dozens, probably hundreds of works of this type that are nearly forgotten today, unfortunately. Now, Spengler does have some choice things to say about Ranka, but what he outlines as being the future of history is to, now that Spengler has established the correct morphology of history, the overall structure, the framework of all world history, we're looking at these eight different civilizations. And the, we can now apply this morphology to write better histories of a lot of these peoples that we have neglected. Uh, to write about or haven't been able to write about because we haven't had the right categories to think about it. And one of the the key things that I haven't mentioned so far about Spangler is his idea that when you're looking at history, you have to use analogy to find which parts of history correspond to other parts, which parts of a civilization correspond to other parts of a analogous civilization. So for instance, it is often said that Napoleon was a new Caesar. Napoleon himself thought of himself as as a new Charlemagne. Or it's said that Alex uh, Alexander the Great and and Caesar are compared or Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great. Spangler says that there is a if we look at the philosophical, artistic, the overall picture of the culture's development, that we can identify the figures who are most analogous to one another, the people, and the trends in philosophy and trends in art that correspond to one another. So some of these analogies that Spangler draws are, I think, very enlightening. So Alexander is Napoleon. Alexander is the Napoleon of the classical era. Napoleon is the Alexander of the, or not classical era, but classical civilization. And Napoleon is the Alexander of the western civilization another figure we could say uh muhammad muhammad is like we said in talking about magians he's not the originator of a new civilization he is sort of a middle figure within arabian civilization uh, magian civilization so who does spengler comp- compare muhammad to He compares him to martin luther martin luther reformed the religious philosophy of the European civilization. He did a lot, and in a lot of ways, Martin Luther's thinking was similar to Muhammad's in that he was trying to reform the church, cut out, or the, the religion, cut out a lot of the convoluted ideas, and Islam is a very reductive, very straightforward faith, no God but God, Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, and... In the classical civilization, the figure who's analogous to, in Spengler's opinion, to Luther and Muhammad is Pythagoras. Because Pythagoras uh, is now not really understood, he's mainly remembered for his, you know, his triangle, but really Pythagoras was a, a religious reformer and there were some political, political ideas that went along with Pythagoreanism, but Pythagoras sort of reformed the classical idea of, of religion. So, with these analogies, if we look at some of the bigger pictures or the bigger trends in history, uh, the artistic or philosophical developments, Spangler compares the era of classical Greece, of um, the great dramatists of Athens, and the great, ph- well, the great philosophers of Athens, too, to the period of uh, Western history from about 1600 to 1800 or so. He compares and he, he draws a direct analogy between Aristotle and Kant as being the final the the philosophers of being of their respective civilizations who systematized the civilization's entire thought about uh, nature and then uh, Plato he compares with Goethe as being the great thinker the philosopher of each of those civilizations who systematized the ideas if we apply this this analogy or these analogies the system of analogies spangler says we can develop a, a new sort of history a comprehensive and objective style of western history that will be true to the thinking the the real historical picture of western man which up to this point has been sort of marred with these ideas of ancient medieval modern and this this focus on on europe and on more current times when really as westerners what we want is an objective picture of all time. That's like our deepest desire: is to have an objective picture of all time. And so, he also talks about how this this idea that he has the he calls it the Copernican idea of history versus the Ptolemaic system. The Copernican, the Copernicus's universe is a much more uh, refined or a, a a clearer way to look at the stars, whereas Ptolemy is a rather convoluted way to look at the stars and the planets and to analyze. Astronomical phenomenon, and he contrasts that with the trends that he was starting to see in the early 20th century, and that have only gotten worse. I think you'll agree since then, where the scientific understanding, the idea of cause, has been applied to history so much and so wrongly that we've developed a very distorted picture. Not only the ancient, medieval, modern, and and the the focus on Europe, but this over application of scientific thinking to history the overuse of statistics and of mathematical thinking thinking about one thing causes another all of this is what is making historical study invalid and i'll read one passage here where he talks about specifically political stuff so he says this is from the introduction of of uh volume one it is quite indefensible. It is a quite indefensible method of presenting world history to begin by giving rein to one's own religious, political, or social convictions and endowing the sacrosanct three-phase system—ancient, medieval, modern—with tendencies that will bring it exactly to one's own standpoint. This is, in effect, making some formula, say, the age of reason, humanity, enlightenment, economic progress, national freedom, the conquest of nature, world peace. A criterion whereby to judge whole millennia of history. And so we judge that they were ignorant of the true path, or that they failed, previous historians failed to follow it, when the fact is simply that their will and purposes were not the same as ours. Goethe is saying, What is important in life is life and not a result of life, is the answer to any and every senseless attempt to solve the riddle of historical form by means of a political program. It is the same that we find when we turn to historians of each special art or science. So think of historians who talk about uh, social history or history of feminism or uh, history of technology or something. It is the same picture that we find when we turn to historians of each special art or science and those of national economics and philosophy as well. We find for example, painting of the Egyptians or the Impressionists, music from Homer to Beirut and beyond, or social organization from lake dwellings to socialism, as the case may be, presented as a linear graph which steadily rises in conformity with the values of the selected arguments. No one has seriously considered the possibility that arts may have an allotted span of life and may be attached as forms of self-expression to particular regions and particular types of mankind and that therefore the total history of an art may be merely an additive compilation of separate developments of special arts with no bond of union save the name and some details of craft technique so this i mean makes sense like it would be ridiculous to write a history i mean people have done this write a history of art and to say well this is what was happening in greece this is what was happening in china this is what was happening in persia and then to say well now we have uh, paint splatters and this is the logical conclusion of all art. It's just, it's meaningless. Why? You, you can't do it that way. You have to look at the development of Greek art. You know, there may have been influences from the outside, but those have to be marked as influences and not an internal development of this, the, the logic, as it were, of Greek art or of Western art. We have to properly define where one artistic tradition begins climaxes and ends and not just lump them all together i think it's a pretty obvious observation but one that's regularly discarded as far as so i talked about the the future of historical study spengler points out what is the future of philosophy in the west in his opinion, it's, it's over, and there's really nothing to do in philosophy or in religion except brute skepticism. And he compares this with classical times where you started to have skepticism as well in the second, first centuries BC, uh, third century BC even. And this skepticism, it, it really because the final form of the philosophical system has already been laid out, Aristotle or Kant. There's really not much left to do other than to just make little adjustments to it here and there or to endlessly criticize and say, well, that system doesn't make sense. And here's why that system, our system doesn't make sense. So in a way, the philosophers of the civilization are actually destroying their own. They're they're eating their own uh, heart and and breaking down what they've built up over time and that that's what happens in every civilization toward the end. The other thing that happens is is once that that philosophical rational system starts to break down, is you see the advent of new religious types or new religious forms, and you see the reemergence of primitive ways of doing things. So, if we look at Rome in the imperial age and Augustus and on, we start to see certain things that wouldn't really have that look more like they belong in the Middle Ages or more like they belong in Homeric times than they do uh, to like the height of classical civilization in the time of the Punic Wars or, or the Golden Age of Athens. So for instance, you start to see th- things like a sort of feudalism emerging in late Rome, where the state no longer had total control over everything, individual military leaders, political leaders, uh, economic magnets, had more power than than the government itself. And people were no longer attached out of loyalty to the Roman state like as they would have been in the Punic Wars where everyone was fanatically attached to the Roman state and the Roman state was able to win the most difficult war in all of its history, the Hannibal War. Now, people in, in later Roman times, there isn't that unity anymore because the civilization is broken down, because the philosophical systems have broken down. You start to see more primitive ways of doing things like feudalism, direct loyalty to individuals within the the greater society. Um, You start to see things like polygamy uh, or um, in the case of religion, more primitive cults. So in ancient Rome, you had the philosophical quasi religion of stoicism. You had the emergence of Magianism, Mithridatism, Christianity, and in the West, we start to see things like communism uh, and socialism as being, and socialism is, in Spangler's view, almost a, a new form of stoicism. It's a rather bland ethical system that seems correct to the mass of people and isn't really as refined as some of the earlier ways of doing things, but is really the only ethical system that's possible in the system in the civilization as it starts to break down. So this brings us to the question of where are we today? And if we look at the Spenglerian analogies like the Napoleon to Alexander and the the turn of culture to civilization as being about the time of 1800 or 1830, then we can sort of do a rough calculation. I mean, Spangler would say you can't just slavishly look at time periods and, and, and break it down that way. But to get a rough idea, I think it's fair to say that the world wars are our equivalents to the ancient Punic Wars. So World War I, Punic War I, Rome versus Carthage. Rome wins. Rome imposes draconian uh, conditions on, on, uh, on Carthage. And Carthage is crippled but not beaten and then rises again with Hannibal to almost beat Rome, but Rome marshals all of its resources, all of its strength, and defeats Hannibal and then becomes master of the Mediterranean. In the succeeding wars of the second century BC and first century BC and into the imperial era, Spengler's point on this is that It wasn't really the greatness of Rome that allowed it to conquer the whole Mediterranean. It was just that Rome was the last man standing. The Punic War, or the Second Punic War, was really Rome's last great military political effort. The Romans of later centuries would never have been able to sustain a loss like they did at Cannae in 216 BC where they lost 50 or 60,000 men in one day never would never be able to endure defeats like that and repeated defeats like that and come back rally their their strength and defeat uh, an enemy like they did against Hannibal so loosely let's say that 202 BC defeat of Hannibal at Zama is the ancient classical version of 1945 and we'll say Hitler is Hannibal it's follows then that we're about 80 years out from that. So let's say we're at about 120 BC. If you examine the politics of Rome in about this time, and I won't go deep into this because I talked about this a lot in the lecture on, uh, uh, on my lectures on Punic Wars and on Rome in the second century BC. But a lot of the things that you start to see in Roman history in the 120s BC look a lot like America today. Now it's sort of, Interesting to make a counter-historical argument, or not a counter-historical argument, but to ask yourself, well, is it the case that Rome winning the Punic Wars, that the, actually the opposite happened in Western civilization, and Carthage won the Punic Wars, and Anglo-America Zog won the Punic Wars in our civilization, and we're actually living a weird sort of backwards history where the bad guys win. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Spangler wouldn't, Spangler doesn't argue that history is predetermined. It's that there's one of two possibilities. Either you do what you can, either you do what you can do, or you do nothing. And if you do what you can do, you're acting within history. And if you do nothing, well, then you're, you're a pleb, you're not a historical actor. And well, most people aren't historical actors. Uh, Only very, especially in a late civilization like ours, only very few men can become very powerful and become historical actors. Spangler would look at someone like Elon Musk today and say, well, he might, he might be a historical actor. He has power. He's able to act within the system as it is and is able to make himself a very powerful and great man. I don't know that, you know, to take just that example, I don't think Elon Musk is He's not our Caesar. He's not our Sulla or our Marius simply because he doesn't understand the Jewish problem. So there's no way that you're going to be able to uh, assert yourself on the geopolitical historical stage if you aren't able to build up a, a power base such that you can act contrary to the overwhelming power of the current time which is money and spangler does identify that in classical civilization you had a a comparable time between uh the punic wars say and and the rise of augustus or the rise of caesar where money and finance was the determining power within the civilization and only when the rule of moneyed men was broken by caesar by the great like democratic popular leaders like Caesar and Augustus was a new system, a sort of new monarchy, a a reemergence of a new or an old form reemerged in a way on a a grander scale in Caesar and Augustus, that that's how you can have a historical change. So there is a, a sort of a secondary question here on, well, what if Faustian civilization is speeding up? And I've talked to to people who are better versed in this than me, and the argument is that basically Western civilization, because of its Faustian nature, because of our obsession with the idea of time, uh, which contrasts with classical civilization where they weren't very interested in time, we are actually speeding up history, our own history, and that it's not we're not at the stage of 120 BC of uh, – we're not about to face 100 years of civil wars. We're actually beyond that. We – the principate uh, – Augustus uh, – happened in 1945 and now we're actually already in the imperial era and we're going to collapse way sooner than Rome just because of the uh fanaticism with which westerners tend to hold their beliefs uh about various things feminism uh the homosexual agenda and you know, whatever and now we're actually going to destroy ourselves faster than classical civilization ever could manage to weaken and destroy itself it's an interesting argument i i tend to think not i think we're going to face 100 years of civil wars And finally, since this is, uh, I've been going on for an hour and a half at this point, which is a lot for me to lecture. So, of course, we have to answer being this is a National Socialist podcast, what about the Jews? Well, I mentioned earlier that Jews are sort of a remnant of maging civilization, in Spangler's opinion. Spangler himself was no anti Semite and he decried anti Semitism a bit, but the logic of his philosophy of history dictates a sort of alignment with hitler in my opinion and to to answer the the position of Spengler would say if we look at jewish power and we we accept jewish power in western civilization as a historical fact of the primary importance that jews are the most powerful ethnic group that they control uh, america and they by extension they control western europe and by the power of uh the atlantic alliance exert more power than anyone else in the world and, and the dollar and, and so on that it is really isn't <clears throat> it really isn't jews that are the issue it's the power of money that's the main historical phenomenon that is causing our problems right now and in a weird sort of hitlerian way i agree with him because i have to view jews as as a sort of force of nature who will always try to corrupt they are (laughs) they always try to negate they are sort of just this force that will do that will just move with nature and they won't they don't really act in the way a historical person acts the way a great man acts they simply go with the flow and because of the stage that we're at in our, our culture, where money is the determining factor in politics, that Jews, yeah, are going to be the most powerful. And that they will be, I will venture to predict, be overthrown, simply because of the fact that the rule of money in the West cannot last more than another century. And this is, is borne out by Simple analogy and comparison with classical civilization, and if we look at you can you can take as a, a test case also Islamic civilization. If you read histories of the Middle East from about Harun al Rashid to in the eight hundreds to like the Crusades, you start to see a lot of similar things happening in Islamic civilization that are happening now. Some of the best books to read about this are those by the British let say soldier, adventurer, almost John Bagot Glubb, who wrote uh, a, a series of books outlining uh, Middle Eastern civilization from Muhammad to really up to the Crusades. But he also has another one on on some of the uh, on the Egypt after that. But the great thing about Glubb is that he writes in a fairly straightforward way. He's very He's a popular writer. He's trying to write it for the the general public, so he's not getting into absurd details. It's a very classically written history. And he but he points out, and he's he's a he was a, a scholar, an adventurer. He not an adventurer, he was a soldier, he led he led Arab troops for the British Army during World War One and in the interwar years, World War Two, he was later the he was later the leader of or the he was appointed as a Englishman to lead the Jordanian army the arab legion in the post-war post-world war ii period and actually led arab troops against israel in 1948 fucking based Uh, he was not an anti-semite despite well he probably should have been but he knew arabic very well and he read the medieval arabic sources and he writes in his books a lot about how in baghdad in the 800s 900s you started to see many of the same things that you see in the west today you started to see uh women holding positions of power Uh, Getting into the law, getting into politics, you started to see a use not of native troops, um, but of mercenaries from from foreign countries. You started to see lots of immigration, uh, the dominance of money, all of these things that Spangler talks about. Glob illustrates very nicely and very straightforwardly as happening in Arab civilization at the time that Spangler would say is analogous from their civilization to classical civilization of the declining Roman Republic or to today. So the other thing to say about the Jewish question is that there have been a number of historians, a lot of historians, since Spangler who have been influenced by him immensely. The main one or one of the biggest ones was Arnold Toynbee, who's a American. Yeah, he was American, an American historian who wrote a twelve-volume history of the world, or analysis of world history. And it's very difficult on today to find his books, other than to find uh, the abridged versions. But the original, if you ever see an original Toynbee, it's worth getting. Uh, it's called A Study in History, and Toynbee take Spangler's position that there's eight different civilizations and he throws it out and he says, okay, well, it's not eight civilizations or eight cultures. It's actually 20 or 25 different cultures. And he identifies different styles of culture. Like he, he says that the Irish of the four or five, six hundreds were a, a, the beginning of a new civilization that was sort of snuffed out by the expanding Western civilization. And that uh, he identifies Sparta as being separate from the rest of Greek civilization. It's it's a it's an interesting analysis, but Spangler would criticize Toynbee, saying that Toynbee is way too much of a materialist and looks for cause in history when he ought not to look for cause. He ought to only analyze the outward forms. But Toynbee was criticized as an anti-Semite, as all good men are, because Toynbee pointed out or called Jews a fossilized civilization he thought that jews were a remnant of the Magian civilization or i forget exactly how he phrases it but that jews are this fossilized culture that doesn't develop and that has sort of been able to preserve itself like a like a moth or a what things get preserved in amber some bug in amber you know it's just preserved there as it is and it never changes Spangler would probably disagree with that slightly. But going back to that idea that you can have peoples who still adhere to the old culture idea that Spangler talks about, talks about like Southern Italy as being or, or Greece as people in the mountains there still kind of act like ancient Greeks and think like ancient Greeks. Well, the same is probably true of Jews. And you could also say, well, i i've always thought looking at the amish that this is just uh this is the remnant of faustian civilization that there will be in a thousand years we'll have these people who still uh have the basic very core idea of germanic western civilization who stick to this very set way of doing things and very set religious idea uh and that it'll last forever but in a a historical form it's not something that will ever develop or flourish again it, it's just stuck the way it is so i want to round out this lecture with a couple thoughts one i just want to mention that i've tried to make this material understandable to somebody uh, who basically do i mean i try to make all of our shows something that a western man of high school education can understand i try to keep it to i I, I hope that our audience is is 16 17 year old boys uh but in all seriousness also uh men in their 20s and their 30s and the problem is that i think and i've said this many times but i think we have a problem in so the, the alternative right of getting too deep into esoteric questions and of sort of playing with ideas and not really getting to the core ideas that we really need. And we have a problem, too, of it's difficult to have high abstract ideas and, to, and high abstract discussions when everybody has different backgrounds. You can see in the books of 100 years ago that the general reading public had a much more developed idea of the world and the general reader could be relied on to know many more of the same things. Now, that's not to say that people today are dumber. It's just that we, in our educations, we've studied many different things and that we, we've la- we lack this core of ideas and of, of facts, of background material to build up to those higher ideas. So the point of this lecture is not to... Uh, Make some great intellectual breakthrough. I have outlined some ideas, my personal ideas that I have in thinking about uh, Spangler's philosophy uh, over the years, uh, just as sort of a, a tidbit to give you something to think about. But by no means is this a, a really thorough academic presentation of this material. There's many things you could criticize about it, I'm sure. That being said, I want to finish off with one thing. We talked about the Jews as we are obliged to. One other thing we have to talk about is the Russians. So Spengler has these eight, civil, eight cultures through history. He leaves open the possibility that there might be one more, one that is emerging. And he says it's between, I think he says the, the Don and the Amur, uh, some river in Ukraine and the Amur. The Amur is that river that separates very the far out in Siberia that separates Russia from China. And he calls this, I mean, he doesn't, I guess he calls it the Russian civilization, but he doesn't really just envision it as being just Russia. It's Russia, the East Slavs, it's the central Asians, the Mongols, maybe even the, the peoples of Siberia. These peoples are the one place in the world where a new civilization is possible he i think maybe incorrectly dismisses the middle east india and china as being able to bring about in or latin america or africa as being able to bring about a new civilization because civilizations have already existed where they can in the middle east and india and china and that once a civilization collapses it just there's no way for a new one to bloom it's like uh it would be as if you 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 plowed a field and grew a crop well you can never grow another crop there it's the land has to lie fallow i i think this is probably incorrect and i think it's sort of refuted in spangler's own position because the magian civilization grew up on the ground that was formerly the province of egyptian civilization and of babylonian civilization so it does seem that that cultures are able to grow up on land that that is already or in places where already there has been a great culture before that has died off so i think we should keep our our minds open to the possibility that there is another civilization that could arise in china or india or or somewhere else but spengler does not think that say for instance the rise of india today or of, or of china today that these Mean that there's a new civilization there. It just means that these areas are undergoing what he calls pseudo metamorphosis. That is a false evolution under the tutelage of a, another civilization. So, in the case of China, and India today, or the Middle East today, these civilization, these peoples are undergoing. Historical development or seeming to undergo historical development because of the impetus provided by Western cl- colonization, Western economics, Western influ- influence. In the case of Russia, Spangler thinks Russia is entirely a different civilization from the West, and I agree with him on this. Russia started to emerge, I mean as a political entity in Europe with Kiev and Rus and. This was under the influence of the the Varangians, the the Nordics who came in and settled in uh, Kiev and and uh, the other cities of uh, Novgorod and the other cities of Eastern or uh, Western Russia, and that really this this Russian culture, in Spangler's opinion, didn't emerge out of prehistory until about 1800 and or 1700, Peter the Great, and so in the same way that. Western civilization, we can't really speak of a Western culture in Gothic time or in, in the time of the ancient Goths or of, um, or uh, of Charlemagne. It wasn't really a, a culture yet, in Spengler's opinion. But it is, he even identifies in that early period of the, the Germanic migrations uh, of some some hints of a culture about to develop in the same way he would look at Russia prior to Peter the Great. He draws an analogy between Peter the Great and Charlemagne. Peter the Great is the Charlemagne of Russia. He has, he establishes Russia as a great state and he, like Charlemagne unites a bunch of peoples who are semi-barbarian, have not had a culture yet and who uh, are, are, allowed to sort of spring forward into a new civilization based on looking at the example of a older civilization in the case of Charlemagne, looking back at Rome, in the case of Russia, looking at Europe. Now, this may seem insulting to the Russians, but we are are not primitive people. Well, it's actually kind of complimentary because if Russia under Peter the Great was the West under Charlemagne, then Russia today is about the West in the time of the Crusades. Russia has, you know, if you look at Russian literature, and Russian art, there's nothing really substantial until about uh, Lomonosov in 1700s. And then the great writers of Russian literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Pushkin, are all in the 19th century. And Spengler was a big fan of Dostoevsky, even like learned a little Russian just so he could read Dostoevsky in the original. He, looking at Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, says that uh, Dostoevsky is the uh, sort of the Russian, the, the first systemate, the, the first Russian philosopher of becoming, and Tolstoy is the Russian philosopher of being. I think that's, he does draw the analogy, or he, he looks at Tolstoy and says Tolstoy is the, he's the more, he represents one idea of Russia, the more Western idea, the upper class europeanized russian sort of fake russia but dostoevsky represents the real earthy peasant russian the the russian culture as itself and i do think he's got something here i think russia if you want to have a, a white pill in all this, uh, Western civilization is doomed, and we're going to be destroyed by money and Jews and our own internal contradictions. And we won't ha- And let's take the the position that we won't even have uh, a great Roman period because our the insanity of the, our degenerate philosophies are just going to clash against each other and destroy us. Well, that's cool because there is one hope, and that is that Russian civilization will be a new world civilization that can flourish and have new philosophy and new culture, new art based on its own ideas. Maybe we'll see. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion or the, the, lecture today. I do intend to do this probably every other week. Uh, just been a bit of a pain because of sickness, as I said, and, and, uh, but we will continue our, our series on mind comp because, I think Mein Kampf is something that's well. It's obviously one of the greatest books of all time, the greatest political treatise of all time, and it's something that is misunderstood uh, not only in by uh, you know conventional culture and the predominant Jewish culture and Jewish academia and uh, liberal whatever they under- misunderstand it completely. But it's of immense practical importance, and therefore not only valuable as a great philosophical work. But more importantly, in Spangler's opinion, well, not really. He didn't think this about Mein Kampf, but I'm going to apply Spangler here. Mein Kampf is the great application of how to do politics in a declining civilization such as ours. So until next time, say hi.